Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We have a special show for you this week, a theme episode that looks at art and its relationship to monuments and memorials in the United States. I'll welcome three guests, art historian Sarah Beetham, activist and artist Julia Pulowski, and artist Ebony G. Patterson. I'll introduce Pulowski and Patterson when we get to their segments, but coming up after the break will be Sarah Beetham. She's an assistant professor of art history at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts. She's working on a book titled Monumental Crisis, Accident, Vandalism, and the Civil War Citizen Soldier, a look at how monuments have become central to a range of American discourses in the many decades since the Civil War. If you follow Beetham on Twitter, and we'll have a link on manpodcast.com, you know that in recent months she's been on a series of road trips across the eastern United States researching and photo-documenting often Jim Crow-era monuments to Civil War soldiers. Julia Pulowski and Ebony G. Patterson a little bit later, but Sarah Beetham first, after the break. Special Announcement the Modern Art Notes podcast is returning to the road for a live audience taping with Sheila Hicks at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. On May 11th, the Nasher opens a new site-specific exhibition of Hicks's work. The show will be in both the garden and the lower level of the Nasher. For the outdoor work, Hicks will play with the linear man-made grid of the Nasher garden by installing durable, color-fast, pigmented fiber along the garden's walking paths, walls, and seating areas. In the lower level gallery, she will install new textile sculptures that will invite viewers to consider the relationships between outside and inside, high art and craft, and more. A live audience taping with Sheila Hicks at 11 a.m. on May 11th at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Hope to see you there. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Sarah Beetham, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, uh, it's good to be here. You have been looking at monuments to Civil War figures for years and years now. And I think the first way I'd like to suggest we consider them is, is as art. So leaving alone the Union States for now, in, in your travels through the South, how often do you find a monument that has what you might consider art historical significance? I mean, that's a little bit of a tricky question. I think for me, what interested me in these particular soldier monuments that I work on in the first place is the fact that they are in kind of a weird place in between kind of a commercial commercial product and something that's more fine art. Um, most of these monuments are mass produced. They are made often by anonymous carvers, either in Italy or in northern states. And so they're not the kind of thing for the most part that someone would think of as having art historical significance. I think there's ways in which they're kind of interesting, connected to kind of the long history of representing the human figure. Um, often you could talk about them as examples of contrapposto, connected to, you know, 
things are coming from antiquity, but thinking of them as, you know, great works, kind of capital A art history is not really the way I think about them. Are the makers of them thinking about them or trying to put them in a certain lineage? I think so. So one of the poses that is the most common, so you you always hear it talked about the idea of parade rest, that these figures are standing at this pose. When you're talking about this from a military context in the 19th century, you're talking about standing with your rifle in front of you, with your weight on one leg, looking directly ahead. But what does that sound like? You've got your weight on one leg, so you're shifting the weight off of the other leg. When we hear that as art historians, we're like, oh, that's contrapasso. And I don't think it's an accident that artists chose that particular military pose in order to put these statues. And often they don't get the idea of parade rest quite right. If you read what it says in the drill manual and you look at what the statue actually looks like, it's not quite the same. The statues are often kind of looking off to one side in a counterweight to the way that they're standing. And so I do think that these artists, whether consciously or not, are participating in this sort of long history of, of representing the human figure and that there are art historical and kind of art choices being made there, although perhaps not 100% consciously. Same two questions for the North. And in particular, do Northern monuments have a greater engagement or more intentional engagement with art history and, uh, than monuments in the South? Again, I don't think, not really. They're very similar to one another in iconography, often because they're being made by the same people. The Southern monuments, for the most part, are not being made in the South. Sometimes the bases will be made made in um, out of Southern granite. Uh, organizations like the McNeil Marble Works, for instance, Marietta, Georgia, would make bases out of Georgia granite and then buy statues from elsewhere to put on the bases. And they would either be coming from Italian firms or largely from the North. And so you're talking about places like the Monumental Bronze Company, Bridgeport, Connecticut, the American Bronze Foundry in, uh, in Chicago, the WH Mullins Company in Salem, Ohio. And these places are making both Union and Confederate soldiers basically the same iconography. The only difference is what costume they're wearing. And in some ways, that's actually strange. And we should, act, we should pay attention to that, because why are the why is the iconography the same on the side that won the war and on the side that lost the war? Why are they making the same monuments and why are they both using the same language of kind of Roman victory to represent their soldiers? That's odd. Is that true in both, say, 1880 and 1920? I would say kind of by 1880, the this is when this is starting to solidify. And then throughout the entire period when the most Confederate monuments are being built, they're very similar in visual iconography to the ones that are being made in the North. There are a few that are before 1880 that are a little bit different that actually have the rifle turned upside down, which was a position called reverse arms, which was used for funerals or surrenders. But you don't see that after about 1880. There are rifles right side up and they look just like the Union monuments. So it sounds like the these monuments, especially kind of considering that 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 decades-long arc kind of fit perfectly into the David Blight, kind of fit perfectly into the thesis of historian David Blight. His race and reunion thesis, for, for listeners who don't know, is all about how in the years after the war, Southerners wanted to maintain a, a certain white supremacy, and Northerners wanted more than anything else reconciliation, and they both agreed tacitly to let the other have what they wanted, what, the, what each wanted. And it sounds like the, these monuments just slide right into that idea. 
Absolutely. You know, David Blight has done amazing work on this. Um, Gaines Foster, who doesn't get talked about very much now um, in current conversations, but uh, he certainly talked about the idea of the largest number of monuments being built in this period after Reconstruction um, at kind of the height of Jim Crow and all of that. And then the Southern Poverty Law Center has also done a very great, good job of documenting this as well, that when these monuments are being built really grasp perfectly onto this resurgence of white supremacy and of segregation and Jim Crow right around the turn of the 20th century. I think I know the answer to this question, but why did Southerners allow, air quotes, their monuments and their plinths to come from the North or from abroad? Was it simply that that's what the sites of production were? That's pretty much it. Uh, You know, this was a problem during the Civil War, that the Southern economy was largely based on monoculture of one particular crop, and they needed lots of things to fight the war effort, and they needed to get them from elsewhere. You see the same thing happening with the production of monuments, that they wanted them quickly, they wanted them cheaply, they wanted to have them all kind of looking similar to each other, and so turning to firms that were already had already figured out how to produce these things in quantity made it a lot easier and less expensive to be able to uh, to put more many of these monuments up very quickly. So we were talking a moment ago about history ref- referencing forms, and, and you were talking about the way the soldiers in the monuments stood. Are there other history referencing forms that are particularly common, especially in the South? I mean, certainly, you know, if you look at the basic structure of what kinds of visual language are being used for these monuments. You've got triumphal columns with a figure on top, which look very much like Trajan's column. You have many, many obelisks, which of course is also an ancient form. Occasionally you have triumphal arches, although most of those I think are in the north. Um, There's a famous one in Brooklyn and there's a few others. And so the forms, Corinthian columns or you know, all of these ideas are coming from antiquity and expressing themselves in these monuments. So I was thinking about how the forms in so many of your pictures of of Southern monuments come from antiquity. And one of the things that jumped out to me is that there were many slave societies in antiquity, of course. Was that an intentional reference? I doubt it. I doubt that they were thinking specifically of slavery. I think that, you know, the connection between the Greek and Roman past and America has a lot more to do with like the foundation of America on these Republican ideals. And so you see that in the beginning of the nation. And then that kind of continues through the 19th century. Uh, that that's that's interesting because it was northern intellectuals, particularly around Boston, the 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 hub of abolitionism in the early ni- early to mid 19th century that were most eager to move America beyond classicism in its art and in its forms. Citing, where did Southerners tend to put monuments, and is that different from where the Nor- from where Northerners put theirs? So there are parts of this that are similar. So I would say in both the North and the South, the monuments start out being in cemeteries and then move into civic spaces. So in the first years after the war. And like we can kind of understand this with a more recent history if we think about the way the Vietnam Veterans Memorial was used in the first, you know, 10 or 20 years after it was put up as a place of going to mourn for somebody who didn't come back, who's, you don't know where their body is. You don't have a grave that you can go and visit, but this is a place where you can go and see their name 
on the uh, on the monument and think about them. And so the first monuments that are put up between like about 1865 and 1880, the vast majority are in cemeteries. They have the list of the names of the dead on them, and they are these places that are primarily about mourning. What happens after about 1880 is that the monuments start to move into public spaces. In New England, you're talking about kind of the the New England town green and, uh, you know, other similar kinds of spaces around the country. But in southern counties, for the most part, um, when you're talking about a county that's largely rural, where people have to come from all over the place to one particular place to do business, there tends to be a county courthouse in the county seat a courthouse lawn in front of the county courthouse. And then that's where the Confederate monument will be. So if you look in New England, it'll be like, you know, little town, little monument, little town, little monument, little town, little monument. And every town next to each other has has their own monument. What tends to happen in Southern places is that it is the, each county has a county seat and then the monument on that courthouse lawn is the county monument for that county. And so very much connected to the local government of the entire county. And then the Confederate monument becomes a symbol that's in front of those places. And then you ask yourself, like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean that this monument that is, you know, pretty bald symbol of white supremacy is standing in front of the courthouse lawn, uh, standing on the courthouse lawn in front of the courthouse that is the place where everybody in the county has to go to do their government related business. And that's like a slight difference, I think, from the way that they're cited in the North. Which makes the sighting of monuments uh, at the entrance to Southern universities all the more pointed, I would think. Sure, sure. First for the South and then for the North. Did many monuments include references to their own eventual deterioration or collapse uh, or what have you? And if so, why? I mean, that's something I have just started to scratch the surface of. And this is kind of in, in the past couple of weeks or so, all of a sudden I'm noticing these weird references to, you know, when this monument crumbles and falls, it doesn't really matter because what's really important is that these, the memory of these guys will live forever. And I'm finding that idea expressed. I have found, uh, you know, I don't know enough yet to know whether it's common in Northern monuments as well, because this is something I'm only just starting to notice, but I have seen since I saw the first one, several examples of Southern monuments where there has been this kind of messaging on it. And it's interesting because, you know, where we are right now, we are seeing people talking about, you know, if we have to, if we take them down, that's going to destroy the history and then the history is going to be forgotten forever. But then you have the monument itself standing there and saying, no, I'm not important. The history is going to live on forever. And they probably weren't thinking about this moment when they put that text on there. But it's interesting for us now to see some of these texts and to think about that. So historians of of poetry of the Civil War era have long noted, I mean, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, have noted how Southern poetry of the late antebellum and, and during the war period is suffused with references to the inevitability of, of death, glorious death, war death, not quite metaphors for failure in the coming war, but kind of pointing to an inevitability of the decline of kind of an idea and, and of course, of, of humans. Do you read those references to eventual deterioration in that spirit, you know, that kind of particular war era spirit, or is it a response to something in the 1890s or in the 1910s or contemporary to when these monuments are made? 
That I'm not sure about. So one of the earliest references that I've found that has one of these was the Camden, Alabama monument that I was just visiting uh, a week ago. And that one was from 1881. So this is starting pretty early on um, in the memorialization of Confederate monuments. So when that poetry is still in memory. Yes, definitely. So, you know, I think you could see it as kind of part of a larger sort of romantic conversation about death, about decay. You know, you've got yeah, Megan Kate Nelson has certainly done amazing work on thinking about Americans' obsessions with ruins and about how the Civil War kind of made it so that there were ruins in the United States to actually look at. I like to think about the Thomas Cole painting, the last one in the uh, the Course of Empire series, The Desolation. And that so many of the threads that I'm working with seem to kind of go back to that painting as well. And so, yeah, I don't think that they were necessarily trying to say on these monuments that they were expecting them to come down or necessarily that they were trying to read the same way that I'm thinking of them now, which is like, you know, okay, so so this is an answer to uh, to this argument about monuments as history. But, you know, it's kind of certainly interesting to to think about that this way. Again, I'm going to intend my next question for both the South and the North, and I know the answer may be different. So speaking of deterioration, how has upkeep of these monuments varied, and what does the state of their upkeep might or might the state of their upkeep tell us about how maybe we should consider their permanence? So one thing that's been really interesting for me in watching what's happened over the past couple of years is that I hadn't quite thought about how kind of the inexpensiveness and quickness with which these things were put up affects the state that they're in at the moment. What has been striking to me looking at some of the aspects, some of the, the instances of iconoclasm like in Durham and places like that, is how easily they went over when someone pulled on them. And, and by went over, you mean literally came down. Like how easily they came <laughs> off their pedestals, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that they weren't stuck together, that, that nobody had bothered to like screw the, the top part onto the bottom part because they never <laughs> thought anybody was going to try to knock it over. And that like, you know, that inertia would keep that thing there forever. But it turns out that if you pull on them, that they fall over. And I've been wondering about that. Like, you know, are they all going to fall over? And you keep hearing, I, I keep finding instances of like things coming down in hurricanes and all these different kinds of structural problems. Another thing that I've been thinking about a lot is materials. And sometimes kind of by accident of where you're talking about, one kind of material is going to be used more than other kinds. So the four main types of materials that these monuments are made out of are granite, bronze, zinc, and marble. And each of those kind of declines at a different rate and is more likely to, like some are more likely to have problems than others. Granite is pretty much okay. It's a very hard stone and it's hard to kind of do anything to harm it. And so monuments that were made out of granite in the late 19th century still look pretty good. Bronze monuments need kind of constant care of their patina. They are subject to corrosion, you know, and so they need a certain amount of treatment to take care of that. Zinc monuments um, have a problem called creep which is that as their metal kind of expands and contracts with moisture and with changes in temperature, the different parts can kind of pull apart from each other. So you might see a, a base that's made of zinc that the seams where it was once put together are starting to split apart. Or my favorite thing about zinc monuments is that all of these ones from the Monumental Bronze Company were slightly heavier in one spot because of where the cape was. 
And so as a result, all of these same soldiers, of which there are about 80 of them, are all leaning over on their pedestals in the exact same angle. Let me let me jump let me jump in really quickly. By cape, you mean the cape the figure is wearing, not the cape that the figure is wearing, the cape of the overcoat. And so it's it's a little bit heavier in one spot. And so they all kind of lean a little bit backwards and to the left because it's heavier in that one spot. And there's like 80 of them and they're all leaning over. And then the the marble ones are the worst ones. Um, and those ones are predominantly in the South because the Southerners were buying their statues from Italy, which was making all the all the uh, the marble. And they are prone to sugaring. So when the surface kind of starts to become kind of sandy and starts to come off, um, they absorb all of the effects of climate change, of acid rain, of car pollution. They start to get discolored because they're, they're collecting all of the smoke and grossness from cars going by all the time. And so they're the ones that are actually in the worst condition, and they are predominantly Confederate monuments. Zinc? Why? I, I, I'm surprised maybe I shouldn't be to learn monuments are made out of zinc. Is that normal or was that a cost saving or? Um, so that became kind of a big thing in the 19th century um, that the zinc is a lot cheaper than bronze. And there were companies like the Monumental Bronze Company um, in Bridgeport, Connecticut is the biggest one that were marketing zinc at, as an alternative to bronze, one that was a lot less expensive and one that supposedly was a lot more durable. That hasn't necessarily played out. I think the bronze ones are kind of largely in better condition than the zinc ones now. But for a while, a lot of people bought zinc monuments because they wanted them quickly. They wanted them inexpensively. They wanted to be able to afford to get an actual figure as opposed to just having, you know, a stone monument with, with no sculpture. And so they bought these inexpensive zinc monuments and they're all over the country. Let's wrap up by talking about the afterlife of monuments, particularly in the South. And maybe there's a specific monument through which to talk through this, or, or maybe not. A number of Jim Crow era monuments to Confederates have been vandalized, um, including in the last year or two. The example of Silent Sam at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill has been the most prominent example, and we'll talk more about that with my next guest. Is there a typical or common, maybe multi-year path through which a community goes before defacement or some type of forced removal becomes... I don't know, an only option or inevitable? I don't know whether there's a standard process. What I think we're seeing over the past couple of years is all different kinds of solutions and all different kinds of processes having, happening simultaneously all over the place. First of all, you have in many of the southern states, you have these state laws that are preventing any kind of change from being made to the monumental fabric. So that's one thing that you're dealing with. And when you, especially North Carolina in Durham and also at Chapel Hill, those acts of iconoclasm were protests against that state law because the state law prevents you from doing any other reasonable thing with the monument. And so what those protesters decided to do was say, well, if we can't do anything legal, we're going to do it another way. But you know, there's there's all kinds of examples of different ways that this has happened. Some places are trying to recontextualize their their monuments by putting up a plaque or putting up new works of art next to them. That happened at the University of Mississippi. It also happened um, in DeKalb, Georgia, which was a really interesting one recently, where they've put up a very fiery plaque in front of it saying, you know, we're not allowed to take this down, but it's a racist piece of crap, basically. So there's been examples like that. There have been a number of removals in Florida because Florida doesn't have one of those state laws. 
And so um, Bradenton, Florida, Gainesville, um, a number of places have kind of in a very organized way taken their statues down from the courthouse lawns and put them up again in cemeteries in areas where Confederate soldiers were buried. So that's one solution is to kind of move them off site to a place that is less prominent and might put them in, a, in something that make, makes kind of more historical sense. So kind of returning them to their original purpose of grave markers for for soldiers. So that's something that's happened. I, I, I know you have specific thoughts on the effectiveness of replacking, as it were. Yes, I personally don't think it's effective. And, you know, the case in university, the University of Mississippi is a really good example of, of why it can be a problem. So, you know, they decided they were going to recontextualize it. They put up a plaque with kind of a milk toast test text on it that didn't even say the word slavery. People just justly complained and were like, you know, this does nothing to recontextualize the monument. It doesn't say the problem at all. So they took that plaque down and put up a new plaque that is much more strongly worded. And then that had been up for a little while. And that's one of those monuments that's kind of right in the front and center, right down a major road. And so somebody came down in the middle of the night, a drunk driver, and hit the plaque and knocked the plaque over. And so they had to go order a new plaque and put it up again. But, you know, no matter how big the plaque is, unless it's an enormous billboard behind the monument that says this is racist, it's always going to be like a little thing that does not does not actually counteract the effect of an enormous monumental work lionizing this cause. And people don't read plaques. You know, people people don't pay attention to that sort of thing. And so for me, the kind of recontextualization that would work is one that really disrupts the visual work that is being done by the monument. There's a great Ann Mealy picture of the Beauregard Monument in New Orleans from 2016 that when she was on on the show, she and I discussed in 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 the context of recontextualization and uh, and monument drift, if you will, and 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 the way she used something behind the monument to make um, a specific comment about the about the cultural context context of the monument. We'll have a link to that conversation on the show page for this episode, and we'll include uh, on Mealy's picture on 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 the page for this episode. Sarah Beetham, thanks so much. All right, thank you. From the Buddhas of Bamiyan to the temples of Palmyra, why is the world's cultural heritage being erased? On April 30th, Getty President James Cuno and author Terence Ward explore answers to this question and offer ideas about how to stop the continuing destruction. Get tickets and learn more about this free talk at getty.edu 360. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus on Aaliyah Saban. The Los Angeles-based artist takes traditional artistic media, such as paint, marble, and canvas, and pushes their limits in inventive ways that merge scientific experimentation with art making. Saban blurs the distinctions between media, questioning the material and conceptual boundaries of an artwork, while revitalizing the notion of what art or the process of making art can be. For her focus exhibition, Saban presents all new works, including tapestries and paintings, based on the geometric patterns of computer circuitry. On view from March 30th to May 12th. Visit themodern.org for more information. Welcome back. My next guest, Julia Palowski, has been involved in Chapel Hill, North Carolina's broad community response to 
The Confederate Monument, University of North Carolina, better known as Silent Sam. Silent Sam is, and was, a bronze statue of a Confederate soldier made by Canadian sculptor John A. Wilson that was installed on UNC's upper quad from the Jim Crow era through late last year when protesters and activists toppled it. The monument is now off view, stored by the university at an undisclosed location. Pulowski is a student at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, and along with artist Annie Simpson, is part of an ad hoc group of Chapel Hill activists that erected guerrilla monuments to James Cates and an anonymized Negro wench in Chapel Hill earlier this year. At the February 12th dedication of the Cates Monument, the group handed out 50 free copies of a zine about Cates's life and murder that was adapted from research conducted by Mike Ogle. We'll have a link to a PDF of that zine on manpodcast.com. You can download it for free. Julia Pulowski, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi. How and why did the, the campaign in Chapel Hill against white supremacist uh, memorials become important to you? I started going to Chapel Hill in the fall of 2017, and I was not really involved with the issues surrounding Silent Sam at first, and I wanted to, but I kind of didn't know how to get involved. But as I saw how it affected more and more students, and I heard more students talking about institutional white supremacy, I kind of just started going. I, well, I went to one protest last February, and I just got a little more comfortable in that space. And then I just st started making more friends in Chapel Hill. So just spending by spending more time on campus and being interested in the issue is how I got involved. So help listeners understand uh, where Silent Sam is and why it matters to so many University of North Carolina students. So I don't know where the statue is right now because it <laughs> has been removed. Yeah, where it was. Thankfully, <laughs> but it was so it was like right at the front of campus in a super prominent location, kind of on Franklin Street, which is the main street in Chapel Hill. And Silent Sam was on a pretty tall plinth. I think the entire statue with the plinth and the statue is about 20 feet high. And so it would be kind of just at the very front of campus. We should mention that it's quite common in, in the South for Jim Crow era monuments to Civil War heroes to be in similarly prominent places at the entrance to campuses, at the entrance to towns, that this is kind of a typical sighting. Yeah, actually, I am from Illinois, and I, I don't know what the tradition is with Southern universities, but I know it was... Like drive like being from Chicago and driving through the South, like it is it has felt strange to me sometimes to be driving through towns and and just being like, oh, there's another one and in the because often they'll be like in the traffic circle or in front of the courthouse, and it's like you're like, oh, well, there's another one, there's another one. So yeah, like in prominent locations, for sure. And I know in I lived in another town before I lived in Chapel Hill. And for example, in Pittsburgh, in Chatham County, there is still a Confederate monument in front of their courthouse, which is in their traffic circle. And I've also spoken at a county commissioner's meeting 
telling them why I think we need to get rid of that statue. So before we get to the monuments that y'all put up, the, the guerrilla memorials, the guerrilla monuments, could you summarize for us uh, kind of how the Silent Sam situation was resolved and how a certain pesky state law, North Carolina Gen- General Statute 100-2.1b, was kind of a real challenge throughout? So I I don't want to say that it has been resolved yet because I think it still continues to affect us on campus and it still continues to affect me because I still have actually just I have criminal charges related to protests surrounding it. And now, of course, uh, Carol Folt becoming the president of USC. It's like she's getting credit for what activists did and not acknowledging them. And just last Saturday, we had white supremacists come to our campus with guns. So I don't want to say that it's over, but I know what you're saying. that It's not in C2 anymore. Right. You're referencing to the statue being gone. While we are still like we have are far from done fighting white supremacy, like the statue is gone. So what I understand is that, yes, there was a law created by the state legislature that forbade the removal of historical markers. And you might have the wording better than I do. But so it was just illegal to remove the monument. And then at one point, our governor actually told Carol Folt, you can remove this monument and you'll get a free pass on this one. And she did not take the opportunity. So she chose to keep it there. And there were protests. And like every time there was a protest plan, we'd get kind of this boilerplate email that just said, don't go. And this is really hard for everyone. And we just have to listen to everyone. Just kind of long emails that weren't really saying anything at all until the 20th when protest actually resulted in the monument, the statue being torn down. So protesters actually pulled it down. So as one of the responses to both Silent Sam's presence and the events around it and to white supremacy at UNC, you and a group of Chapel Hill activists devised, uh, came up with an idea to create two monuments that you would then install on public property. One to uh, a man named James Cates and one to an anonymous or anonymized, maybe would be a better word, figure uh, referred to on the memorial as Negro Wench. What was the process of coming up with this idea and those two representatives? Uh, We wanted to memorialize James Cates because he was a young black man from Chapel Hill who was stabbed to death on UNC campus by a white supremacist motorcycle gang, and they were acquitted by an all-white jury. And actually, one of the men still lives in Durham to this day. And so we didn't feel like the university properly remembered him. And we also feel that the university has negatively impacted Black communities who have historically lived in Chapel Hill. And just seeing that unfairness, we wanted to commemorate him. The other, the monument to the Negro Wench was conceived because 
at the commemoration of Silent Sam, Julian Carr, a man named Julian Carr, gave a speech in which he said that he, he bragged about whipping a Negro wench who ran to the university for safety. And he said that he bragged about whipping her until her dress was in shreds. And actually, we have a street named after him on campus still. So we wanted to com- we wanted to commemorate her and just kind of show that we don't forget and that that would be the person who we choose to remember rather than these Confederate figures who have been spun into myths. Carr was uh, a North Carolina business owner, um, a white supremacist, a Klan backer. His tobacco manufacturing firm is the one that uh, gives us the Bull Durham brand that that is still so famous today. So you had the idea to memorialize Cates and Negro Wench. How did you decide what form those memorials would take, what they would look like? Well, we went back and forth about a lot of different ideas, and we knew we kind of already knew what the plaques were going to look like. Annie had already gotten those and had kind of already conceived of how she was going to make them. And from there, we've played with different ideas, making making a plinth or a base out of bricks or pouring concrete, but there was the issue of moving it. So it was just kind of emerged out of practicality because if you see the photo, it's like they're they're pretty bottom heavy. We'll have the pictures of the monkeymanpodcast.com. Yeah. So it was kind of just out of it was out of practicality, but then also I just like that it ended up looking really different from the Jefferson Davis highway marker and just kind of different from a lot of plaques with stone bases that you see around. So one thing that I thought would have been nice about just having a stone base or concrete. Well, there was the issue of of moving it there, of just getting it to the location. So that played a lot into the materials that we chose to use. Yeah, and the plaque that's on the top of these these bases, um let me let me read each of them. You know, it's kind of a black background and gold text and and one of them says in honor of James Cates in 1970, this young black activist lay bleeding to death in the pit, which you referenced a moment ago, stabbed by members of a white supremacist gang. James Cates's blood is on our campus. We fight in his name. And the other plaque referencing Julian Carr's role at UNC and, and the history you also mentioned a moment ago, that plaque says, in honor of the Negro wench, she ran to this university for safety and for the color of her skin, was beaten at its gates. We fight in her name. And then, for example, the Cates Memorial, there uh, was a photo of him leaned up to uh, against it. And then there is this uh, just kind of relentlessly cheeky, clever, laminated text that was chained to the memorial. And uh, what is it and what did it reference? So I don't actually, that was not one of the other artists that put that wanted to put that there. But it, it is the statute that prohibits the removal of objects of remembrance. I think part of what we're in, we are interested in doing and are interested in doing is seeing 
how the law is applied and seeing what happens in the court. So, yeah, I mean, it is an object of remembrance that we place. So it was illegal for the university to remove it. Yeah, it was an object of remembrance placed on public property, which is the 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 argument that UNC had used for some time to explain to argue that Silent Sam could not be removed. So y'all y'all put these monuments up in in on public property, and what happened to them, and when? So the James Cates Memorial was taken in the night, the very same day that we had put it up. And we're pretty sure that the school took it. With the Negro Wench Memorial, very soon after we put it up, I think maybe the next day or two days after that, it disappeared. And we weren't sure what happened to it. But we found out through social media. And yes, through pictures on social media. And then through the police calling one of the artists that a white supremacist group called ACT BACK, which stands for Alamance County, taking back Alamance County, had taken it. And before they could leave with it, I guess, or the the police maybe saw them taking it and followed them, they pulled them over and took the monument to the police station. So I'm not really sure about what happened because they then Facebook pictures of act back members appeared with the monument. Like they were posing with it, maybe with police lights in the background. Like we're not really sure, but then, so, so a few, some people went to the police station and got the monument back and put it back where it was next to the Jefferson Davis Highway marker. And then on the morning, I can't remember if it was the 22nd or the 23rd, it was gone. And the town released a statement saying that they had just taken down both of the monuments just because they thought they were just intensifying conflict and that they were creating a threat to public safety. But what they didn't tell us until later was that someone had already vandalized our monument. So to us, it seemed like someone vandalized our monument to a black woman, which could be a hate crime. And then the town tried to cover it up. And the way we found that out was that later that morning on social media, on Facebook, we saw a photo of the Negro wench plaque cracked in half and it was on a laid on a Confederate flag. So that's kind of how we found out the town was saying, we have your monument. And then, then we saw it online in the hands of Neo Confederates. One, I mean, it sounds to me very much like the two monuments I'm trying to avoid using the word succeeded, but pointedly noted a continuum of reaction rooted in a tradition of white supremacy. Silent Sam was not uh, a problem and was not removed because it was divisive or incited violence, but your monuments were. Is that a uh, an outcome you um, expected or anticipated or 
or hoped would point to um, a continuum? Maybe, yeah, for some people, because, I mean, I guess some people still need to be convinced that we are living in a white supremacist system, and some people will just never be convinced. But I guess I kind of thought that maybe our monuments would stay where they were. Like, we kind of thought that the James Cates one would get removed. But, no, I think I was a little surprised that they both got removed as quickly as they did. I don't think we were trying to make a point in that way. Is it useful here to think in terms of metrics of success? I mean, has this been a a, a successful response? Has it been... I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe a metric of success is that it was personally rewarding and meaningful. It was. Yes. I, I mean, I do think it was successful. I, so I used to make a lot of things and I just really liked this opportunity to just, you know, someone had an idea and they weren't sure how to carry it out. And I was like, Hey, I like this. I have an idea of how to build this thing. And it was something that I felt and still feel really proud of. I got to work with Annie. We had never worked on an art project together. So I really liked doing that and just kind of being process oriented. Yeah, I do think that was successful. And now just continuing to further this discussion. I mean, we're, we're you and I are here now talking about this, you know. So I do feel like it was successful. I mean, we want to keep making more public art commemorating people who deserve to be remembered and, you know, commemorating black people. And I think we're going to we want to keep doing that. And, you know, this was one project. It's not going to be the only project. Do you know what the future projects are yet or? I don't know yet. No. Yeah. TBD. Yeah. Julia Pulaski, thanks so much. Thanks. My next guest is Ebony G. Patterson, an artist whose work updates the memorial form and expands it to include people and groups typically excluded from the American memorial and monument tradition. Among the works she and I will discuss are two recent memorials, Called Up, which she presented last year at Open Spaces Kansas City, in two works recently installed at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Right now, the Perez Art Museum in Miami is presenting a solo exhibition of Patterson's work titled While the Dew is Still on the Roses. It's on view through May 5th. Ebony G. Patterson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler Green. Thanks for having me. What about the idea or the actuality of memorials first interested you and why did it hold your interest? Well, I think that my interest in memorialization actually was triggered by um, personal loss. My father's passing, I think, had triggered, was the first work I, I made that actually contained a dead body or referenced a dead body. And so having to think about my father's passing in relation to the work that I was making, in relation to a number of circumstances that had happened around his death that had nothing to do with him. Like, for example, when my father had taken gravely ill during the summer of 2010, there was also Jamaica came under uh, civil unrest and we were under martial law for the extradition 
of Christopher Koch and a number of killings had happened during that period in a community that Koch was associated with, which was Tivoli Gardens. And so my larger practice had always been interested in the way working class people use codes of dress as a way of creating or carving a sense of presence for themselves in spaces that they were not allowed to have power and authority. And it led me to looking even further at how the act of dress related to acts of memorialization through the funerary. So I was, that's how I became interested in this, um, in bling funerals, which is not an official term. It's more, well, it's an academic term. It's not a term that an everyday person uses. And I was interested in how dress became a part of that language of the funerary and how funerals that were put on by people in working class environments also seem to hold the same markers of state funerals and also in many ways carved out a very kind of unapologetic shout that spoke to the value of the life of the loved one who had passed on, irrespective of the circumstances under which they may have died. So there was a a kind of collision of events, I feel, that happened. So thinking about my father's passing, which was, you know, like personal mourning, but then at the same time, also sitting within the, I guess, the fervent ground of a, of a kind of public mourning that was also happening around the community of Tivoli Gardens, where it was al- alleged at the time that 72 people, 72 men and one woman was killed during this, the seeking of extradition for Christopher Koch. Of course, many years later, when an inquiry was done, it, 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 it came out through a public inquiry that it was believed that the numbers were even more and were even significantly more, almost double the amount. But there's still a lot of questions or that have kind of gone unanswered in those, even through the inquiry. And I guess it was also interesting too to think about the general attitudes of bodies that come from particular spaces. And I felt that it was just really important. One, through a project that I'd done, which is called the Off 72 Project, one, to mark the moment because I felt that if there was no accountability for, for these people who had been killed and no ownership around it, because when I made this project, the Off 72 Project, I made it between 2011 and I think it was 2012. <clears throat> so the thought was... You know, at the time, there was no claim, you know, like the state was not owning its its hand in in the killings that had had happened uh, around these bodies. So what happens then when bodies are not claimed, you know, and what happens then when there is no statistical marking of where those bodies fall? So they can't fall under police killings because the, the, the state does not the state isn't claiming claiming it as such and it can't fall on the you know a general murder statistic because the state isn't claiming it as such so then where does it go and so it's almost as if these 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 lives just never existed because there was no mark there was no mark made for them but on the back of it there were definitely people from the community you know who who would show up 
by, you know, like protesting. I mean, of course, there were also other protests that led up to the incursion, um, led up to the capture of this person. But I'm talking about the protests that happened after the incident um, that 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 marked the the events that happened. There were small protests that would would have been staged at the you know like at the front of Parliament. Quite often, these were women. I also remember you know like during the time I was home during the in- the incident, as it also referred to. Not comfortable with that word either because it it sounds too flippant, you know. But when when the event had happened, there were women and predominantly who would be calling into radio stations, talk shows, um, sharing what was happening and really bawling, bawling and begging the prime minister to intervene, you know, like, you know, begging, asking, why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? They just took, you know my son or my fad or my uncle, you know, and it was always these women who were giving voice to these men who were being killed. And then the women at the end were the ones who also, you know, were the ones who would show up and give voice, you know, would give voice to the absence of these bodies. So these, you know, so these things like sat with me as, as I was like going through my own personal mourning of my of my father. Also, too, on the day I buried my dad, I also passed, you know, after dropping off relatives, I also passed a, a crime scene. And it made me also wonder about the person who had also died there. You know, so there, there are different things that I think that just kind of unfolded in the moment that made me think even more broadly about the about the ongoing conversations within the work as it as it stood. You know, what, one of the things about that that's really interesting is that it sounds like your interest in all of the following things had a common genesis. Memorials, memorials to people who are unknown or unfamous to the public and memorials that address a a large group of people rather than an individual that it it all sounds like it came from 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 one place let's talk about a a specific memorial you've made and then and then broaden out from there Uh, let's start with called up which was a memorial you made in kansas city for their open spaces sort of ennial to whom was called up a memorial and how did you come to choose the site you chose I'd like to think that called up was a memorial to the people who had used the site, who we know very little about. So how I how I came to the site. So first, I was you know Dan Cameron, who was a curator of open spaces, had invited me to come to Kansas City to visit Swope Park, where initially most of the the exhibition was going to happen throughout Swope Park. And, you know, just kind of thinking about the history of that site and my own practice, he, he had kind of pointed out a, a, a number of places that he thought may have been of particular interest to me. And we just, you know, we were just continuing to look around the site. I think it's also interesting that, you know, like Swope Park, when you think about, you know, like when you think about what a park is, a park is an embellishment on a city or within the city landscape. Um, When you also think about the communities that border or, you know, that border Swope Park, they're predominantly black 
communities. And then there has been, you know, like the way Dan also described Swope Park to me in term, like in relation to, say, for example, Central Park, you know, he, he, he would make those kinds of contrasts as a New Yorker that, you know, Central Park at one point, I, I don't know if it still does, like I guess especially in the 80s, used to be a place that you just didn't go to at night. And Swope Park also had a similar, a similar kind of sensibility around it in relation to the city. So, you know, like when, when we were discussing the project, it was like, you know, he shared with me essentially that he wanted to use a site as a place that people could come to that this 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 place that was essentially a gift to the city a very you know, was a gift to the city by the person who had who had owned it initially swope that it was being underused and that was a big big decision so in just driving through the park you know just doing this tour you know we come out we look at particular places and then we drove through what seemed to be a campsite. Well, at first we weren't really sure what it, you know, we just saw these, um, these structures that seemed like huts, but we weren't quite sure what they were. So we walked up and then we looked inside a doorway and there were people inside and we're like, whoa, sorry, <laughs> you know, and we realized, oh, this is, a, this is actually a cabin. And there were campers that were staying there, saw these picnic tables and just beyond the cabin, was this derelict pool and the pool was fenced off yeah let me let me let me jump in just for a second second when you say pool you mean swimming pool a a kind of a, a concrete dug into the ground thing not a not a pond yeah no not a pond uh, a swimming pool and this is not the swimming pool that many people know swope park for so it's not the pool that was a part of a desegregation protest and lawsuit. This was another pool, and it was even deeper in the park. And there was one marker, which was this plaque to this doctor named Harry M. Gilkey. And the plaque, you know, like, just basically said that, you know, Gilkey was a doctor who worked with, you know, like, who worked with children in the city and that the pool was a hydrotherapy pool. You know, but the, the long and short of it was there was, there was very little information, one about Gilkey and, and even more so about the site. And it was, yeah, so it was just unused. It had a, there's also a pool house next to it. There was a sign that was up and it was totally fenced off. There were things that were definitely living inside the pool. So there were frogs, there were snakes. And then also, too, when you think about a pool, too, a pool is also an embellishment on a site, right? So it's kind of that, you know, like shiny thing that you take, you know, like if you have a, if you have a pool at your house, you know, it, it creates a moment of shine, you know, like, ooh, you have a pool, you know? You know, so what does it mean then for an embellishment within an embellishment not to be embellished and then I essentially said to Dan what, what's that and that's how we ended up in the back because he didn't know about it either none of the organizers of um, open spaces knew about it and then when we tried to find information from final information from people in the park everybody was like what pool are you talking about are you talking about the pool that's near the zoo and that's the pool that everybody knows because it's well documented you know like when the desegregation deseg laws came down and Kansas City refused to comply because their their thought was or their position was 
there was a rec center or a smaller park in the black community and they had their own pool and why did they need to use this pool? So they shut down the pool and that's how that case then ended up going to court if my memory isn't, my memory serves me correctly. And then eventually Kansas City was told it had to make the pool public because it was, it was illegal to do so. But this pool, apparently through one website page that I was able to find, said that the pool was also used by camp goers. And apparently the camp had both boys and girls camps, but apparently a year before desegregation laws, those camps had already begun to integrate. So there's a, a, a little bit of, you know, fragments that are coming together, but still not enough to, to truly sew a real story together about who it was that was, you know, who specifically was using this site. I also learned that Gilkey was also, when he was a young doctor, was all he had also worked at the Black Hospital that was also in town at the time in, in Kansas City. And I think he was like one of two white doctors that had that had worked there, on, I think either on a volunteer basis or I'm, I'm not quite I'm quite sure. But again, the information is all really murky, murky about it. So then also to what does it mean to make a monument at a site that's already a monument and it's not about that person either, right? And so I I just felt really compelled or, you know, really moved by the site because it was unattended to, but yet life was happening around it because you had all of these trails that would take you past the area that would, you know, that people would traverse, you know, going through the park. There were definitely, as I said, campsites. The um, ranger's lodge or cabin was not that far off from where this pool was too. And I couldn't find out when the pool had stopped being used. Some people said it was like 15 years, 20 years ago, but there was no ready documentation. So, you know, like... So you have like a random passerby like coming up, you know, like when the pool was being drained or prepared, prepared that would just come up and like, oh, it's so great to see that this is going to be used again. Um, it's been shut down for X, you know, so we're getting all of these like oral histories. And I think the closest I've ever come um, was getting a message when I because I had collaborated with Kickstarter um, to make the benches for the project so that people could sit at the site. I had gotten a message from a woman whose brother was in, in Gilkey's care and the brother had physical had physical challenges it sounded like and she you know she spoke very very compassionately about Gilkey you know she talked about how how grateful she was for how he cared for her brother um, but that's kind of it and then I also heard about his granddaughter you know trying to trying to raise money you know like to get the pool functioning and functioning again and how much that would mean and what it would what it would cost, all of these, you know, varying narratives. But there was nothing like there was nothing concrete that I could go to. Even when you click or you you, you know, like you type in Swope Park Pools, it would still be that pool that was in the main heart, you know, of the park. So it it the site just raised a lot of questions for me. Um, and I think as it relates to my own practice, I think it 
it seemed to make a lot of sense as a, as a site too. But I was, I was taken there. I was pulled there energetically. I mean, as airy-fairy as that sounds. But the truth is, none of the people who I was walking with knew, you know? <laughs> we, was, and, and that's really, really, really what it, you know, like how we came to, un- or how I came to uncover that site. What brought you from discovering the site and being interested in the site to specifically thinking about a memorial for children who suffered from incurable ailments um, and how the pool was the site of their hydrotherapy? Well, the pool, well, that's what the pool was, was made for. Well, based on the information that was there, the little information that I, I found about why the pool was built in the first place. It was a medicinal it was a medicinal pool. And there was no information, again, about who these children were or, I, you know, like I had hoped that maybe through the project, maybe I would have learned some, you know, learned something about even one individual who had used the pool or met somebody who had. But that that didn't in the hopes that I would learn a little bit more. But that didn't that didn't happen. But I just think, you know, but just also too in thinking about children, you know, like the idea of children or the, you know, like children are seeds of potential and they're seeds of life. And uh, when we think about a pool in order for any site that, you know, that that would hold or engage the presence of bodies in order to give it life, if that is absent then the site is dead and its purpose has become null. So it just, you know, it brought me back to that question again. If, you know, like if the park is the embellishment and a pool is, is the embellishment within that and, and the pool isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing, and then, then how could we shift that? And then how could we in some ways resurrect that and also mark that this is a site that was once active it was a site that was once full of life. It was a site that that had its own history and and that the people who once used it are also worthy of acknowledgement, even though we don't know who they are individually. So the relationship between history and memory and present being really important to you. Right. Also just thinking about, you know, like how does one or how do just people in their everyday carve space out, you know? in spaces that that they're not allowed to have visibility how do people create visibility for them for themselves and how do i mean it it definitely also led me down the road of like thinking about like thinking about like street memorials and the language that a street memorial has and where street memorials predominantly happen and how those happen and how those those things unfold and so a lot of the markers that were used within the work borrowed from that same um, language. It is a, you know, it's not an individual speaking to an individual or speaking uh, about an individual or shouting about an individual, but it's a community that comes together, you know, and says, this person is worthy of acknowledgement. This life, the ground that they that they traverse, the, the spaces that they lived in, the place where they passed, you know, where their last energy may have been or may not have been or where their energy may have been, been you know, like uh, been inhabited otherwise is important to acknowledge. 
Well, one of the strategies across your work, but especially in Kansas City, is the use of beauty and bright color and seductive surfaces and all to attract a viewer to engage with, with history, past, memory, experience, and sometimes violence or injustice. And so in the case of the Kansas City project, you, you told the art newspaper that it was a trap, a total trap, which made me laugh. And, and I loved how in talking to the Kansas City NPR station, one of the other open spaces artists described your project there as, quote, a vision of color and thought, which I thought would be just like a great way to have something I'd done described. So was beauty, bright color, seductiveness always in the way you thought about making memorials, or did that evolve and come into the work over over a period of time or thought? I mean, I think it's it's definitely evolved from the larger from my larger practice. So I've always been interested in dress and codes of dress and how dress is used by working class people as a way to carve out their own sense of presence and to carve and claim dignity. I'm, I've always interested, been interested in the kind of performativity around dress and, and my earlier work would, you know, like also touch on how that performativity also related to gender and how, you know, like how these ideas about like certain patterns happening on certain bodies, how this was, you know, kind of shifting. So like the male body are, uh, was becoming more ornate or more baroque, you know, turn uh, at the turn of the millennia. And how does that then move into when it uh, becomes a language that's off the body, off the body in the sense of its relationship to the funerary, right? So how does that same language or the same ideas around dress or dress as a protest then relate to a funeral? But I've always, you know, like the, the I. When I say I'm using it as a trap, I'm also recognizing to, you know, like our human instinct in, you know, like we're kind of like, we're kind of like bees, you know, we're attracted to the brightest flower. And it's not until we go in, you know, we decide, oh, you know, like I'm interested or I'm not, or it's, oh, this is really sweet. I'm going to hang around for a few more seconds or I'm not. Um, there is a, you know, like we're, we're visual, we are visual beings and, and we are way more visually intelligent, I think, than we, we seem to understand that somehow visual language, you know, like the minute somebody's being at, we, we don't seem to understand that that is a language in and of itself, you know? That's what I mean when I say I use I use beauty as a trap. I recognize in some ways also too our own sense of superficiality, right? That somehow it is the procurement of objects that somehow tell us whether or not somebody has value or importance. It is a flash of things that make us notice someone. Well, I'm interested in how the flash is used strategically, right? And is used strategically by by people who are told that they have no value based on the socioeconomic structures or racial structures that are located around those bodies. And then how those acts of just the everyday engagement with dress is also to an act of memorialization in and of itself. You know, I remember, like, say, for example, I don't mean to, to quote, quote a song here. In this song, Long Live the Chief, Jadena says, I don't want my best dress day in a casket. 
I mean, that, which is, which is, you know, like when we think about like when dressing up happens, you know, it's always around particular events or celebrations. And, you know, they always say like there are two events in your life that will be the most expensive. It'll be your wedding and it'll be your, it'll be your funeral. Right. And the funeral, the funeral money is coming in from another place. It's not you who's spending that money, but maybe your family is spending that money to, you know, like, and then, so, you know, that becomes its own thing. But I was, you know, like, but I'm interested in how that notion of, of memorializing myself every day, that a memorial does not have to happen, have to have to happen to bodies that are, or about bodies that have passed either. We don't, it, it's the only time we need to create a monument is when that body is no longer around. Is the time that we have to acknowledge people is when, when, when they're no longer around, isn't it more pertinent to acknowledge those people when they're, when they're here and they're present? And so I just felt like, you know, like while there was all of this mystery around, you know, around this, around the site, around this, the, the Harry and Gilkey pool, not knowing how long ago it wasn't used either. I, I, I don't know what its last spanning life was. You know, I don't know. But how long before it was shut down, was it still being used as a hydrotherapy pool? Because as I also mentioned, I had learned that campgoers were also using the pool. And when was that? And are any of those people still around? And did any of those people also get to come and, you know, see the site and engage with it? Did they also feel like... You mentioned memorials uh, that address people who are still with us. And I think that your recent project at the Baltimore Museum of Art does that. But before I get to that, a common thing that runs through a lot of your work, including the memorials, is your use of flowers, either silk flowers, I mean, actual physical silk flowers or or flowers that you paint. Did the flowers migrate from the memorials into your other work or was it the other way around? It was the other way around. So I, yeah, because the, the interesting flowers actually came from a, again my earlier work and, and just uh, conversations around the feminine and the way the feminine was being in terms of its language was now being used to kind of reposition this idea about what machismo meant you know so so I was using all of these, this, these, I guess, the signage that was associated visually with a feminine and ornate language to really uh, to reimagine or not reimagine, but to kind of, you know, position these juxtapositions between like the shift in masculinity that was or the shift in the read about what was machismo or the masculine um, at the turn of the how that was shifting at the beginning of the millennium. And how men were, you know, all of a sudden engaging with languages that that seemed to be associated more with the female body. So, for example, you know, like, oh, you know, pink was a color that was what that was predominantly seen as a feminine color. But it's not strange now to see a man in a full pink suit. But at the turn of the millennia, if a man was wearing a, a full pink suit or in the, or in the, even in the 90s there'd be all kinds of questions about his masculinity or his his sexuality and that would relate to a whole other question uh, set of questions about whether or not he was truly masculine which is also you know which which also has its own set of problems 
in terms of the way we make these incredibly narrow margins about what it means to be and a narrow checklist about what it means to be. You know, like none of us are monoliths, monoliths um, and that includes gender too. So I was really interested in how dress was playing a role in that. And then as the work evolved and I began to think a lot more about memorialization and also to thinking about the garden in relation to the body, right? So thinking about the garden as, this is something I should have mentioned earlier, thinking about the garden as a site that relates to the grave. So how does that kind of language, that, you know, that kind of ornate decorative sensibility also to happen on the land or in the space that bodies are buried and memorialized? So it was a kind of trans you know, like it was it was an evolution in 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 the in the way I was thinking about the work in in the language, the language or the questions that were coming up as I was working on these ideas. So speaking of clothing and gender and address of the present and beauty as a trap, you recently had an exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art, which included two two works, two spaces. One of them, titled uh, Ellipses, Made for Kids Ellipses, consisted of about 150 uh, brightly embellished toy guns positioned at the foot of, if you will, Joshua Johnson's painting of uh, a young boy who is wearing uh, bright red shoes and he's posing with a dog and a toy gun. For listeners who don't know, Joshua Johnson was a black portraitist in the early 19th century in Baltimore. And virtually all of his, and possibly all, we don't know, of his portrait subjects were were white people. So upper middle class white people were hiring a black portraitist, which is something about which we still don't know that much. There's not that much textual documentation related to Johnson at all. How did you chose that juxtaposition as an address of a memorial to the present and uh, and how violence has affected children in America today? Uh, well, I don't know if I think about that work as a memorial at all. And not, I don't know if, if I if I do. I don't. I don't. That that work's definitely not a memorial at all. At the time when I, I mean, when I came to do a site visit at the museum, when I was being taken through the, you know, just being taken through the the various galleries, you know, like we stumbled on uh, this Joshua Johnson painting. And Joshua Johnson's work was not a work I was familiar with at all and serendipitously at the same at the at the time I'd been working for a number of years in my studio just making a pile of toy gardens that were being collaged embellished and just being piled up in the corner uh, of my of my studio over the last couple of years and so I was really struck by the painting for a number of reasons because one here was this child and then two there was the gun he seemed incredibly awkward and he was also a boy and not knowing anything about Joshua's uh, history was shared with me at that moment by um, Cecilia Wickman who's uh, the curator I worked with that you know Johnson is America's earliest known black painter and that he was from Baltimore and I was like whoa what is you know like what is what can I can I can I jump in with one thing really quickly? I just want to emphasize something I should have emphasized a moment ago. Um, he was a freedman. Um, he he was he was he he either bought his own freedom 
or acquired it in, in some other way. But uh, well, you... yeah, some texts say that. I mean, they mentioned who his father was, and if it actually mentioned there, were, I think there were records that were found that his father gave, and I'm putting gave in in quotes him his freedom, and that his mother was a was a, a slave woman. It doesn't mention who his mother was, the name of his mother. We don't even know if he knew, you know, we don't know if he knew his mother. And there isn't, I'm not, one thing I'm not, I'm not sure of is, yeah, and there's not a lot clear on what happened because there's a time where his history also seems to drop off. His history is a total fuzz. His history is Right, a it is a fuzz. fuzz. We're not sure how he came to Baltimore, you know. So there are a number of things. But there was this ad that was where the, there has been a, you know, people, uh, historians have found like an advertisement where he advertised his service as a um, self-proclaimed genius, uh, portraitist, and luminaire. And, you know, it, 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 it's, you know, that's such a wonderful thing to see too, because, you know, like you're imagining that this also came from his own voice and the way that he saw himself, you know? So, yeah. So there's all of this history again, that we don't really know, uh, where, where Johnson's life is concerned or his, or his life as an artist or when he started practicing or, all of the, uh, yeah, but the the painting itself struck me because of the subjects within the painting. And I've always been interested in toys for a very long time. I've always used toys within my work and quite often juxtaposing toys with other images. And, you know, usually there's a figure somewhere involved within that. And my interest in toys had a lot to do with um, had a lot to do with ideas around gender. How from very early, toys are actually a very key symbol in helping us to understand what our rules, our expectations are in terms of, in quotes, males or females. You know, So girls' toys were always about domesticity. They were always about nurturing. They were quite often centered around, you know, the home. They were quite centered around you know, around the home. Um, while boys' toys were always about combat, they were always about fixing things. So there was an there there was a, 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 a there's a particular kind of inquiry in like problem solving that happens in boys' toys that doesn't necessarily happen in in traditional boys toys versus traditional girls toys it's one of the reasons i've always said you know if i ever had a boy child one of the first toys he would get is an easy bake oven because he needs to realize that you know cooking is not a woman it's not a it's not a it's not a job for a woman it is a life skill we should all know how to cook and prepare meals for ourselves but side note so you know just looking at the painting of charles Herman stricker williams who the painting is of I, you know, he just, he seemed really uncomfortable. And then at the bottom of the painting is his dog. The dog is like, seems to be desperately trying to get his attention as the child kind of gazes back at us holding this toy in this really uncomfortable looking play suit and um, ruby red slippers. And then to the right corner of the painting, we can also see that there is, we're seeing a bit of the outside. So there is a, horizon line with a fate with you know it's believed Baltimore is like 
you know, a glimpse of the Baltimore city in the distance, right, through an art. But, you know, like the, the window within that suggests, you know, like the possibility, you know, like the future is outside, you know, like with all of these things that we load on to young bodies, you know. But what sits almost, you know, like slightly more up front than the young boy in the picture is the gun. You know, the gun is even more forward than he is. The gun is, you know, it's used as a staff. It's almost as if his body is, you know, like it, the, the gun becomes used for balance, both pictorially and physically. And I was really interested in, you know, like, again, just going back to these ideas about like what it, you know, what it means to procure young minds and young bodies very early on in ideas around violence what it means to procure us from very early on in the engagement of that in a time when our brains our bodies are not developed far enough to understand that one of the things that i thought was really intriguing about the way toy guns have been you know uh, how they have developed like just in the last few years you know like if you just take a walk say for example through the toy section of a Walmart and just spend like five minutes just playing around with those things. A lot of those guns have trigger actions that mimic the real thing, right? Some of them, for example, that, that are like the machine guns, they actually have a sensor where the gun jerks, right? So it's holding, it's, it's from very early on associating you with a kind of memory that those tools hold. They're almost to scale the actual thing, even though they may be brightly colored, you know, in attractive coloring to, to lure, to lure the young person in, you know, again, it's a, it's a B thing, you know? So I, I, I was just, you know, I, as I said, I, I was making this, these guns in the studio, all out of children, toy guns. Some of the guns are, you know, like guns that I've, that I've gotten you know, stores like Walmart, or I've bought them on, you know, online. Some of them are airsoft guns, like BB guns, as well as just, you know, like other kinds of toy guns. Some of them have different weights. Sometimes the weights of those things are actually quite alarming to me because they feel like they could, you know, the weight of them also feel like they could be quite real. And I was, yeah, so I was just interested in this the, the juxtaposition of one, this arsenal of guns, of toy guns, and what that would look like on its own initially. And then in seeing this painting, it just kind of stirred this possibility for a conversation between the work of Johnson and the work that I was making, as if, as if almost as if we were speaking to each other, you know, across timelines. And speaking back and, you know, kind of speaking back and forth between our, between our works. Of course, the, the guns are also heavily covered with fabrics and embellishments. And then they're piled up. So it almost seems like there are these moments where they become flattened. And it's interesting what they seem to be like in terms of their flattening. You know, they, they start to take on a kind of, you know, landscape language because of the kind of horizon that it begins to begins to build out as it is as it is kind of like mounted and gathered elsewhere in the baltimore museum of art you created what it was a memorial for 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 children killed in violent crimes it's called ellipses and babies to ellipses 
do you approach a memorial that you install and present in an institutional context, such as in an art museum, differently than you approach a memorial that's in a more open-ended context, like out, like, like in the outdoors? Yeah, well, I, I have to, because one's outside and one, one is inside. And they both pose very different sets of problems because one's a room and one's not a room. One may have limitations. One limit the, the opportunities may be boundless in the case of something that happens outside. So how can I create a work that's dynamic enough and carves through the space in a way that sees or tears into the person's memory so that when they move on from this work and they see someone who comes from a kind of social or racial demographic that the work kind of references, does that then does the work then trigger that memory and trigger, you know, trigger how does that trigger trigger their memory and then therefore trigger their engagement? But I'm also hoping for the same thing within when I do something within an institution. I think that what happens when I'm in an institution is that I end up trying to build environments. So I end up trying to build out rooms or a space or place that speaks to the work or is the work that somehow expands the way in which the expands the way in which the viewer engages the space. I mean, you're describing um, an environment that you're describing environmental empathy. Right. So when when I yeah, when I make a room, I'm, I'm trying to I'm, I'm really interested in like shifting a viewer psychologically when they enter that space, like totally. And especially for me, I always see it as a, ch- um, a, a real challenge to like think about, you know, like if, if this is somebody who's come to the space before and they know this room, how can I make it so that this room feels so different that it's stared into their memory even after the show comes down, they still remember the room. I, you know, I think that's really interesting because what you're describing is shifting a viewer's thinking or empathy, whereas if we think of Jim Crow-era monuments to Confederate soldiers, we think of objects that are about reinforcing a system. So shifting versus reinforcing and how foci and, and, and objects try to act in very different ways and how thoroughly you're subverting (laughs) a form. Ebony Patterson, thanks very much. Thanks so much for having me, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.